welcome to 2023 Holiday Q&A with DHA. We're delighted to have everybody here today. Our numbers are starting to even out, still climbing a little bit. So again, welcome everyone. I don't know where everybody is here today, but I know we have individuals across Eastern Ontario uh, and up in Northern Ontario and out in Toronto and pretty much across the province. So wherever you are, I hope it's a gorgeous day. It's snowing here in the Ottawa region. So it's giving us a bit of a Christmas or holiday flavor here today. So again, today is our Q&A and the purposes of our Q&A is to answer some of the burning questions that have been submitted by our various uh, viewers and readers of our blog. We had a ton of questions submitted for this session, which is just fantastic. What we've tried to do is lump together the key questions into informational topics as well. You may hear your exact question if it was fairly general. If your question was really fact specific, we may have had to sanitize it a little bit to make it a bit more general, but we did try and do our best to hit all the key topics from the questions that were submitted. So we have a lot of information to share today on those various questions. We're going to jump in in just one quick second. Before we do that, just a quick reminder, we won't be taking live questions today because again, we have so much information to share on our previously submitted questions. But for our next Q&A, we do hope and invite you to uh, submit questions at that particular time and we hope we can share all the information we can today on the questions that were submitted. So let's dive right in there. Our first speaker today is Jessica. So Jessica, go ahead and join me on screen. And Jessica, I'm not going to give away the everything you're going to talk about today, but I hear it's everything about CE mods, common element modifications in a variety of contexts. So Jessica, I'm going to go ahead and turn that over to you. Perfect. Thank you, Nancy. So as Nancy said, my questions today have to do with common element modifications and changes in the condominium corporation, corporation's assets. The first question I'm going to go over is whether or not the condominium can get rid of an asset that was present since construction. The short answer is yes. The longer answer is how you actually do that. For example, maybe you have a live-in superintendent unit that you don't use anymore. You're going to want to look at the procedure set out in Section 97 of the Condominium Act to determine what process would apply and what amount of owner involvement would be required to approve any proposed change. Changes to the common elements, assets, or services of the condominium corporation fall into three general categories. First, changes falling within the mandate of the board. For these type of changes, the board can decide whether or not to proceed with the change, and there is no legal requirement to involve owners in the proposed change. Second are changes which require owner involvement, but which are not substantial. And third are changes which require owner involvement, but are substantial. The Condominium Act lists five types of modifications which fall under the board mandate and include modifications which are necessary to prevent imminent danger or damage to the property or assets of the corporation, or modifications where the estimated cost in any given month of making the modification is no more than the greater of $1,000 and 1% of the annual budgeted common expenses for the fiscal year. If the proposed change does not fall in, under one of those five categories that's listed in the Act, then the change will require owner involvement. When looking at a change to an asset that's been around uh, since construction, I would say it's generally unlikely that that's going to fall within the board's mandate. It's much more likely that there's going to be some sort of required owner involvement e under either 97.3 or 97.4 of the Condominium Act. The nature of the required owner involvement depends on whether or not the proposed change is considered substantial. 
If the proposed change is substantial, it must be approved by a vote of the owners of at least two thirds of all units voting in favor of the change. If it's not substantial, a vote of the owners may not be necessary. The owners will be given notice of the proposed change and the board can proceed with the change unless the owners requisition a meeting to discuss the change which within 30 days of receiving that notice. If a meeting's requisition, the board can proceed with the change if the owners do not vote against the proposed change at the meeting. Section 97.3 of the Condo Act sets out what sorts of information you need to provide to your owners when sending out that notice. Now we know that a substantial change is treated differently than a non-substantial change. So let's talk about the meaning of that word, substantial. According to the Act, a proposed change is considered substantial in the following circumstances. One, if the estimated cost of the change is greater than 10% of the corporation's current annual budget, or two, if the board elects to treat the change as substantial. This idea that the board can elect to treat a change as substantial is an important one, and there may be very good reasons based on the mood or nature of your community for the board to deem a change substantial and therefore require a higher threshold of owner involvement. There are amendments to the Condominium Act which have been proposed, which would, if in effect, provide more direction on how we think about the impact of certain changes. In that wording, the corporations asked to consider whether the owners, on an objective basis, would regard the modification as causing a material reduction or elimination of the use or enjoyment of the units or the common elements and assets of the corporation. The answer to that question would have an impact on what must be done to approve the change. So what's legally required to make any sort of change to the common elements or assets of the corporation can be quite fact-specific, and your corporation's legal counsel can assist in helping the board determine both the legal requirements and also the best practices in making any sort of change and packaging it to your owners. My second question today has to deal with owners making changes to the common elements. The question asks, if an owner has made a modification to the common elements, but there is no Section 98 agreement and no Section 98 bylaw, who is responsible to maintain and repair the modification? First, I'm going to take a quick step back and talk about the legal requirements under Section 98 of the Condominium Act where an owner wishes to make a modification to the common elements. Step one is that the modification needs to be approved by the board. Step two is ensuring that it complies with Section 97 of the Act, which we just spoke about, depending on the nature of the change. Step three is entering into an agreement between the corporation and the owner, which is then registered on title to the unit. That agreement, called a Section 98 agreement, governs the modification and must deal with such things as responsibility for the cost of the modification, responsibility for repair and maintenance, and also insurance. Alternatively, the corporation can put a bylaw in place, called a Section 98 bylaw or a Common Element Modification Bylaw, which approves and governs certain specified permitted modifications and includes the terms and conditions that are going to apply to those changes. In the question we received, this owner has made a modification to the common elements but has not entered into a Section 98 agreement, and there is no Section 98 bylaw in place. In this situation, what we have is an unauthorized modification to the common elements, which is not in legal compliance with the Condominium Act. But the question was, who's responsible to maintain and repair it? And the short answer is the owner. But they're also legally required to enter into a Section 98 agreement with the corporation that confirms this existing responsibility. Even if the owner refuses to execute an agreement of this kind, they still remain responsible for the modification unless there's a specific agreement with the corporation that the corporation is taking on responsibility for that modification going forward. But if you're in a situation like this, the corporation also needs to ensure that the modification is brought into legal compliance. 
Again, it's going to be dealt with on a case-by-case -case basis, depending on the specific circumstances of your case. There are sometimes complicating factors, but generally speaking, if the corporation's okay with the type of change that's been made, the condominium will need to require the owner to enter into a mandatory agreement or insist upon the removal of the modification and restoring the common elements. So that's all for me today. Nancy, back over to you. Thank you so much, Jess. And I think at the bottom line, the key is don't do anything without first checking with your board to make sure that you are compliant so that you don't have to work backwards ensuring compliance. Key messaging. All right. So we're going to turn it over to our next topic. And I think this is a good topic, particularly for this time of year. Noise. Lots of noise at Christmas and the holiday season. So it may be even more sensitive at this point in time. So our newest member of our team, Dominique, go ahead and join us on screen. And Dominique is going to tackle some of the key questions that we've received about noise. So I'll go ahead and invite you to unmute yourself, Dominique, and turn it over to you. Thank you so much, Nancy. So hi, good afternoon, everyone. As Nancy mentioned, my name is Dominique, and I'm one of the new lawyers here at DHA. And um, the question I'm going to tackle today relates to addressing concerns on noise and vibration coming from a particular unit owner. Um, this question that we received specifically asks, how can a condo corporation address a noise problem arising from an owner's home theater system, particularly the noise frequency sound or bass that it produces when the owner uses the home theater system after 11 p.m.? And when we're talking about low frequency sound or the bass that it produces, this type of sound is the type of sound that's more likely for people to feel as vibrations. However, if it's intense enough or loud enough, people can both hear it and feel it. And as some of you may know, uh, noise and vibrations are among the most common issues when it comes to condominium communities, especially since people are living within really close proximity of one another. Um, this is why there are provisions in the Condominium Act and most uh, condominium corporations governing documents relating to the prohibition of noise and nuisances. Um, under the Condominium Act, uh, Section 117, Subsection 2A, states that no person shall carry on or permit to be carried on activities that can create unreasonable noise uh, that is a nuisance, an annoyance, or a disruption to somebody uh, or an individual in a unit. And most condominium corporations also have rules and sometimes provisions in their declarations that prohibit noise or nuisances. Um, in some cases, municipal noise bylaws also apply. But when it comes to noise transference issues within a condominium property, municipal bylaw uh, bylaws regarding noise may have someone, somewhat of a reduced application. However, this will depend on the particular circumstance, and so this is something to keep in mind. And having said all that, um, it's important to note that under Section 17 of the Condominium Act, condo corporations have a duty to take reasonable steps to ensure that owners and occupants comply with the act and the condominium's uh, governing documents. And so when there's an instance of when a unit owner um, 
is causing issues with regards to noise and vibrations coming from their home theater system. In this circumstance, it would be the duty of the condominium corporation to adequately investigate this complaint and to figure out whether the noise or the vibration coming from this is an unreasonable nuisance, annoyance, or disruption, or um, violates the Condominium Act or the condominium's governing documents. Um, some factors that can influence whether or not the noise or vibration in question is unreasonable includes the source of the vibration, the intensity, the length, the frequency of the noise or vibration, as well as the time of day that it occurs. Um, it, during the day, there's less of an expectation of quiet because during the day, that's when people are out and about and working. However, in this case, when it's 11 p.m. onwards, there is more of a reasonable expectation of quiet time because during this time, it's when most people are usually asleep. However, you know, we do acknowledge that noise can sometimes be subjective. Some people might just be really sensitive to noise. And so um, usually when noise or vibrations are a result of structural issues or systems within the condominium, such as a mechanical room or the HVAC systems or garbage chutes uh, are the ones causing the noise or the vibrations, usually corporations could retain expert engineers to do uh, objective measurements or testing to assess whether or not the noise or vibration is reasonable. However, in a case like this, when the noise is coming from just one occupant, expert input of this kind may not make sense. And so in most cases, the option open to uh, directors or the board or property managers might be to have an independent third party like a director, a site superintendent, or a management representative to attend um, and observe the noise or vibrations taking place in order to either help corroborate or refute uh, whether or not there is a noise or a vibration issue. Um, and once this has been determined, um, the condo corporation should determine what or who is causing the issue. And if the corporation is finding that these noise transfer issues affect multiple units, that may be a sign for them to consider whether to work with a sound engineer on possible upgrades or abatement measurements to help reduce the noise or vibration levels or excessive noise or vibration transmission within the condominium. However, if it's been determined that this is an isolated noise or vibration issue relating to a particular occupant, and you've, and you've determined who it is that's causing the issue, uh, the corporation can then work with the offending owner or occupant to address the issue. And the first step in doing so would be to send them a letter, um, send a letter to the person who is causing the issue, asking them to comply with the noise provisions in the Condominium Act and or the condominium's uh, governing documents, just to see if the problem could be addressed without further escalation. And if the problem still persists after that and, in a, re and a reasonable amount of time has passed, um, it would be appropriate for the corporation to send a follow-up letter to the offending party uh, with a warning that if this problem persists, legal counsel uh, will have to get involved. And 
if the problem still persists after that, uh, the corporation can think about obtaining assistance from the corporation's legal counsel. And the uh, usual first step that legal counsel would usually take would be to write a lawyer's letter to the noisemaker asking them for compliance. And if that still doesn't work and the problem persists after that, the corporation may have to consider whether to file an application with the Condominium Authority Tribunal or the CAT for enforcement. And I won't go into the CAT right now because now it wonderfully transitions us to the next topic, which is uh, the CAT. So that is for me, that's it for me on the noise and vibration issues. And I hope this answers the person's question. Thank you so much, Dominique. That was fantastic. And it was a beautiful transition. So folks, without further ado, then I think I'll invite Emily to go ahead and join us on screen. So Emily, things have not been resolved and it wouldn't be a DHA Q&A without at least a mention of the CAT. So let's go ahead and turn it over to you to talk about the cat. Yeah. Over to you. I don't know that we've had such a smooth transition in topics uh, in previous Q&A, so that was really great. Um, so yes, today the questions that I'll be addressing relate to the CAT uh, as well as the court and how to know where to bring your dispute, what issues each forum deals with, and what to do if you need to enforce an order that you've received from the CAT. So we'll unpack that a bit today. To start, the jurisdiction of the CAT. Um, there's no question that condominium-related disputes arise all the time. As Dominique was talking about, noise issues are something that commonly arise within condominium communities. But whether your condominium-related dispute falls within the CAT's jurisdiction depends on two things. The first is, who are the parties to that dispute? And the second is, what is the subject matter of the dispute? When considering the parties to the dispute, it's important to note that at the CAT, there are restrictions on who can start a CAT case, as well as restrictions on who may be named in the CAT case. Currently, the CAT only deals with disputes involving owners, residents, condominium corporations, mortgagees, and purchasers. More specifically, in Section 1.36 of the Condominium Act, it confirms that a condominium corporation can start an application a CAT application against an owner, occupier, or a mortgagee of a unit. Likewise, an owner or mortgagee of a unit can start a CAT application against a condominium corporation, an owner, occupier, or a mortgagee. However, an occupier, such as a tenant, is not permitted to commence a CAT application. In limited circumstances, a purchaser of a unit may also be permitted to start a CAT application. This means that if you have a legal dispute involving a declarant or a de developer, a contractor, a consultant, or a manager, then the CAT would not be the correct forum in which to start your legal proceeding. So turning to the types of disputes that can be heard at the CAT, the Condominium Act and its regulations confirm that the CAT has exclusive jurisdiction over disputes relating to condominium records, disputes relating to unreasonable nuisances, annoyances or disruptions set out under Section 117 of the Condominium Act, which specifically include noise, odor, light, vibrations, smoke, or vapor, disputes relating to provisions in a condominium's governing documents that prohibit, restrict, or otherwise govern unreasonable noise, odor, light, vibration, smoke, or vapor that may, that may cause a nuisance, disruption, or annoyance to any individual, disputes relating to governing documents that prohibit, restrict, or govern pets, animals, vehicles, parking, and or storage, as well as any other type of nuisance, annoyance, or disruption to an individual in the condominium corporation. 
It's important to note here, though, for this type of dispute that the CAT requires the condominium to have a specific governing provision that speaks to the specific nuisance, annoyance, disruption that is the subject of the CAT case. Otherwise, you will likely run into problems with the CAT accepting your application. And lastly, disputes relating to provisions in the governing documents that govern indemnification or compensation related to any of the above disputes that fall under the CAT's jurisdiction. It's important to note here that this is an exhaustive list, which means that if your dispute does not fall within the, the items that I've listed here, uh, the, author the CAT does not have the authority to address the disputes. This being said, the case law has confirmed that when it does come to the Human Rights Code, the tribunal is able to consider and apply the Human Rights Code as it relates to a dispute that does fall within the CAT's jurisdiction. This issue often arises in cases um, where a service animal or rules respecting animals are the subject of the dispute within the CAT. It's also important to remember that the CAT has exclusive jurisdiction over the disputes that we've just talked about. This means that if your dispute falls outside of the CAT's jurisdiction, you won't be able to bring your dispute to the CAT, and that will be something for the court, which I'll move to next. As many attendees will know from experience, there are advantages to having your condominium-related dispute brought by way of a CAT application. The CAT forum is fully online and therefore very accessible. In addition, the CAT generally provides a faster outcome compared to proceeding by way of a court application or mediation arbitration in some cases under Section 132 of the Condominium Act and can, depending on the type of dispute, be comparatively less expensive. Having said this, while the CAT has jurisdiction over a number of disputes that commonly arise within condominiums, its jurisdiction is limited relative to the court. As you likely know, the initial mandate of the tribunal was only with respect to condominium records. In the fall of 2020, the CAT's jurisdiction was expanded significantly to include the types of disputes that I've just mentioned earlier. As the tribunal gains experience and becomes involved in more and more complex condominium disputes, we anticipate that it will continue to expand its jurisdiction. At the same time, there are issues that are better suited for the Superior Court of Justice, which has a significantly broader jurisdiction and more extensive powers. So moving on to the court's jurisdiction. Some examples of disputes that arise within, the condomin within condominiums that fall under the court's jurisdiction include issues that relate to easements, occupiers' liability, condominium liens and priority issues under sections 85 and 86, prohibited conditions and activities under section 117, requiring a person such as a tenant to vacate a property permanently, modifications to common elements, and generally any other dispute that does not fall within the CAT's jurisdiction previously noted. Beyond this, another type of proceeding that only the court has the authority to determine is the issue of enforcement of CAT orders. So talking about enforcement specifically, what this means is that when you get a CAT order against a party and that party is refusing to comply with the order, depending on what the terms of the order states, to enforce that order, you may be required to commence a proceeding in court. In cases where you receive a CAT order awarding you a sum of money for compensation or costs under Section 1.45 of the Condo Act, such an award permits a condo to add the, con the amount to the unit's common expenses and collect in the usual course when those amounts are unpaid, so via condominium lien. The advantage here is that there's no need for a separate enforcement mechanism to ensure that the party against which this type of CAT order is made provides payment in accordance with that CAT order. 
However, when it comes to a CAT order that requires a party to do or to not do something, in other words, when the order includes terms that are purely behavioral, this gets a bit more tricky. Like other tribunals in Ontario, the mechanism for enforcement of orders is through the Superior Court of Justice. Again, the CAT cannot enforce its own orders, with the, with the exception of settlement agreements, but that's another issue that uh, we won't be discussing today. The authority to enforce tribunal, order, tribunal orders lies exclusively with the courts. This goes back to the broad powers of the courts, including the availability of civil court procedures, which are much better suited to address enforcement issues. The specifics of a proceeding to enforce a CAT order and what steps might be involved can differ depending on the facts of the situation. So the key takeaway here is to remember that when it comes to disputes that fall within the CAT's jurisdiction, the tribunal, the CAT, tri the condominium authority tribunal is the correct forum to begin the legal proceeding with the caveat that you may end up in court ultimately if enforcement of the CAT order is necessary. And with that, I'll turn it back to Nancy. Fantastic, Emily. Thank you so much. And you touched on chargebacks. Uh, so it looks like we do have another nice transition because uh, we are going to take it from cat enforcement and jurisdiction over to chargebacks, which perhaps eventually may be within the cat jurisdiction. Uh, but that's not the key issue that we're talking about here today. So Cheryl, over to you on chargebacks. Thanks, Nancy. As Nancy mentioned, I will be reviewing chargebacks. I'm also going to touch briefly on green energy retrofits. For the questions received on chargebacks, the questions were very specific on whether a certain charge would be permitted. And I can't answer the specific questions without more context and reviewing that specific corporation's governing documents. However, chargebacks are an interesting topic, and I thought it would be helpful to go through some considerations to keep in mind when determining whether something is a valid chargeback. So what do I mean when I speak about chargebacks? I'm talking about costs incurred by the corporation that fall outside the regular common expense apportionments. Common expenses are defined under the Act as expenses related to the performance of the objects and duties of the corporation and all expenses specified as common expenses in this Act and in its regulations or in a declaration. Generally, a condominium corporation's declaration will define common expenses as those expenses described in Schedule E that are shared proportionately as set out in Schedule D of the declaration. So then what do you do with additional expenses that are not shared proportionately? So what do you do with chargebacks? In order to determine this, we need to look at the Condominium Act and the corporation's governing documents to see whether the costs would be recoverable as against an individual owner and whether they would be collectible as common expenses payable for the owner's unit. The Condominium Act does set out some circumstances where additional costs can be charged back and are collectible as common expenses. These include chargebacks under Section 92 sub 4 of the Act, where an owner fails to maintain or repair after damage and the corporation completes the work in accordance with Section 92. Section 105 sub 2 of the Act related to chargeback of the insurance deductible on the corporation's insurance policy and Section 85 of the Act for costs related to collection of common expense arrears. In these situations, um, while these are chargebacks that are collectible and recoverable as common expenses, 
careful communication with owners to set out their duties and responsibilities as it relates to costs and potential chargebacks is helpful to support the corporation if it needs to take collection action. Other chargebacks that arise based on a breach of the corporation's governing documents can be more challenging. There may be some circumstances where the costs are clearly collectible from the owner, but they may not be recoverable as common expenses. So as you excuse me, likely know, enforcement of the Condominium Act and the corporation's declaration, bylaws and rules is a fundamental role of each condominium corporation in Ontario. It is, in fact, a statutory obligation that's expressed in Section 17, Sub 3 of the Act. But when a condominium corporation reasonably incurs costs, such as legal costs, in taking enforcement steps in relation to an offending owner, occupant, or invitee of a unit, can the condominium corporation add those costs back to the owner's common expenses without first going to the CAT, the Condominium Authority Tribunal, or court? There are definitely precedents at the Condominium Authority Tribunal and in the court allowing recovery of costs from owners. However, most of the time this turns on the corporation's indemnification provision. Additionally, it depends on the nature of the chargeback and how it arose. There is a decision from the Superior Court that seemed to say that enforcement of enforcement chargebacks might not be possible without obtaining a court order first. In both the lower court decision and the appeal in Amlani, the court held that the enforcement costs did not fall within the indemnification provision in that corporation's uh, declaration. However, the decisions also contemplated the requirement for a court order before charging back certain costs as common expenses. We continue to feel that a strong indemnification provision is the best way that a corporation can protect itself. The Condominium Authority Tribunal has, in some cases, charged back costs to owners under a strong indemnification provision. If you have a situation where there is a cost that the corporation believes is the responsibility of a unit owner, the chargeback needs to be looked at carefully to determine whether it can be charged back and whether it is collectible in the same manner as common expenses. Again, even if you cannot collect the expense by way of lien, it could still be recoverable from the owner. In my view, communication with owners is key. Um, providing clear written warnings about costs to be incurred and allowing owner and the owner an opportunity to take steps to avoid them will support the, co uh, the condominium corporation if it ends up in the cat or in court. So that's my comments with respect to uh, chargebacks. We also received a question about um, green energy retrofits. The question was whether anyone was lobbying the federal government to have them add mid and low rise multi-residential, uh, multi-unit residential buildings to the program for green energy retrofits to offset costs that the condominium corporation might incur. I can confirm in reviewing the Canada Greener Homes Initiative that there are certain grants available for multi-unit residential buildings with three or fewer stories, so the low-rise multi-unit uh, residential buildings. I'm not aware of whether specific lobbying of the federal government is taking place with respect to multi-unit residential buildings with over three stories. From my review of the current programs, it appears that a high-rise or 
um, multi-residential buildings that are over um, three stories um, are treated differently because they have very different engineering considerations and represent more complex structures that are outside the scope of both the Energuide rating system and the Canada Greener Homes Initiative. With that said, I do want to note that there is an initiative taking place by the Better Buildings Ottawa, which is looking to support Ottawa condominium buildings participation in low carbon building retrofits. So this is something that condominium corporations can look into. All right, Nance, that's all for my questions. Fantastic, Cheryl. Thank you so much. And yeah, the green energy retrofits, I think we're going to start seeing some more information about those in the new year. Uh, so watch for that. And CCI Eastern Ontario may be doing some upcoming webinars on that as well. So just to keep watch on CCI Eastern Ontario information as well. Fantastic, Cheryl. Thank you so much. And we're going to switch gears again, and we're going to jump into meeting conundrums or meeting questions. Uh, the fall AGM season is coming to a close. I only have, I think, four more uh, to go. Others hopefully are coming to a close as well. And so to get you ready for the spring AGM season in a few months, we're going to get Nicole to walk us through some of the questions that we've received about meetings. So Nicole, over to you. Thanks so much, Nancy. We did receive some great questions about meetings and boards for today. So I'm just going to jump right in. Uh, the first question we have asked about what rules of order apply for board meetings and also asked about quorum and how many votes are required to pass a motion at a board meeting. So let me begin by briefly explaining rules of order. These are rules or procedures that set out um, and govern procedures to call and conduct certain meetings. The question asked about Robert, Robert's rules of orders, um, which we more typically see used in parliamentary procedures. Nathan's rules of order might be more typically used for condominium boards and meetings and meetings uh, owners. But the principles under these various rules of order are very similar and will essentially give the same direction to condominium corporations. Rules of order can be a helpful tool for condominium boards to ensure organized and productive meetings. However, there's no prescribed requirement to follow any particular rules of order in conducting board meetings. What matters is that in substance, the meeting adequately addresses the required business. Following specific rules and procedures can help to ensure that it's accomplished. In terms of quorum for board meetings and how many votes are needed for a motion to pass, <clears throat> the short answer is that quorum must be present in order to hold the meeting and a majority of the directors present in voting must vote in favor in order for a motion to pass. Section 32 of the Condominium Act requires a quorum of the board to be present for the transaction of business by the board, with quorum being the majority of the number of positions on the board. So for instance, if the board consists of five positions, at least three directors must be present in order to hold a meeting. During the meeting, a motion does not require a vote of quorum to pass, but rather it requires a majority of the votes cast to be in favor of the motion. In other words, Going back to the example just given, if only three directors of a five-member board cast vote on a given motion, the motion would carry with the majority of the votes cast, being two out of the three votes. These numbers can get tricky, so if in doubt, be sure to ask for appropriate guidance on this one. And moving to our second question. 
the question asked um, asked about director disclosure and whether a director is disqualified for failing to provide a disclosure form. The Condominium Act and regulations require directors to disclose certain facts to the ownership of the condominium. Section 11.6 of Regulation 4801 lists particular information that candidates have an obligation to disclose, such as if the candidate is not a unit owner, does not reside in the community, has a material interest in a contract or a transaction to which the corporation is a party, and several other items along those lines. The point is that the Act requires candidates to disclose certain facts that the ownership should be aware of in voting for directors that will govern their community. If none of the disclosure requirements apply to a candidate, that is, if they are a unit owner, they reside in the community, none of those disclosure requirements apply, from my reading of the legislation, there is really nothing to disclose. So at times, these situations can be complex, but not having a particular form completed doesn't necessarily mean a director is disqualified because the Act does not prescribe a particular form for director disclosures. And as I've just said, there are instances, instances where a candidate does not have anything to disclose. However, we do often see informal disclosure forms used because they're a good way to ensure that any required disclosure occurs. And that's the point. Directors must disclose certain facts as required by the Act before they're elected to the board. If the condominium corporation discovers that a candidate has failed to provide any necessary disclosure, this would indeed disqualify that candidate. That is, they would be removed from the board in accordance with section 29 sub 2 paragraph F of the Act. However, this really depends on the specific circumstances of each case, looking at what was required to be disclosed and what was in fact disclosed. Again, if in doubt, I recommend seeking guidance on this. And moving to our third question, <clears throat> an owner asked for a copy of board meeting minutes for the last six months. How long can the board take to reply? And what, if anything, can be redacted from the minutes? If an owner is asking for copies of board meeting minutes, I'm assuming that this is coming in the form of a formal request for records. There's a procedure set out in the Act and regulations for records requests. Owners and certain others are entitled to examine certain records of the corporation by virtue of section 55 sub 3 of the Act. Board meeting minutes certainly are one of those records that can be requested. As I'll explain further in a minute, the board meeting minutes asked about in this question are also core records. To make a request for records, there's a form that must be submitted to the condominium corporation, which details what records are being requested and how they are to be delivered in a paper or electronic format. That records request form is available on the Condominium Authority's website. Once a formal request is received, the Condominium Corporation has 30 days to respond using the response to a record request form. That form is also available on the Condominium Authority's website. It's important to note that certain information that, it, it, that will be provided must be redacted from the records before being provided to the requester. Section 55 sub 4 of the Act defines what is considered confidential in relation to condominium records. For instance, information related to employees, certain litigation information, certain identifying information related to specific units might need to be redacted. 
This section, section 55 sub 4, should be reviewed in responding to records requests. The particular records mentioned in this question, board meeting minutes for the last six months, as I mentioned, are core records. Meeting minutes for the one year period before the request is received are considered core records. This means that there are additional requirements that also apply, which are, if core records are requested in electronic format, they must be delivered with any required redacting, either in electronic format or in paper format, no charge, within 30 days of the, receiving the request. In other words, they'd be delivered along with the board's response to the request. If the core records are requested in paper format, they must be made available for delivery or pickup, again with the required redacting, within seven days of the corporation receiving the completed confirmation section, which is contained in the board's response form, as well as payment for the copies um, to be produced at a cost of 20 cents per page. If the requester makes a request to examine core records in person, the records must be made available for examination, again with the required redacting, within seven days of the corporation receiving the completed confirmation section. Again, that section is in the board's response form. And again, with the applicable payment being made. <clears throat> in this case, uh, the estimated cost can also include a reasonable labor cost incurred by the corporation to have someone present during the examination. All this to say, there are certainly tight timelines uh, to be aware of in responding to records requests. And that's all for me. Back to you, Nancy. Thank you. Terrific, Nicole. Thank you so much. And, and records requests, again, right, we're, go right back to the CAT. We're seeing a lot of condominium authority tribunal or, uh, decisions about records. So don't hesitate to do a quick Google search if you have continuing questions about records. And if you still have any trouble, then obviously you could reach out to Nicole. Thank you so much, Nicole. All right, we're going to move on to our next topic. Reserve funds, repairs, so much to say about that particular topic and lots of questions received. So Jim, I'm gonna go ahead and turn that over to you. Well, thanks very much, Nance. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Uh, as Nancy said, my topics are repairs and reserve funds. I have five questions that I'm going to try to answer. So question number one, what can a board do to offload some repairs and maintenance costs to owners that were first listed on a declaration? Can new rules be implemented to su supersede or distinguish the more general terms found in the declaration? Here's my answer. You can't use a bylaw or a rule to amend or change the repair responsibilities in the declaration. That sort of change would require an amendment to the declaration with written consents from the owners of 90% of the units. However, if the declaration is unclear or ambiguous, or in other words, is capable of more than one interpretation, I think you might be able to consider a clarifying bylaw, or in other words, a bylaw to clarify rather than amend the repair and maintenance obligations in the declaration. <clears throat> we have, in fact, prepared and passed a number of such clarifying bylaws. In general, I don't think that a rule would be the best way to go for this sort of clarification because rules don't generally deal with repair or maintenance issues. Instead, rules generally deal with use of the property. Question number two, who is responsible for the cost of repairs in a unit, the owner or the corporation? My answer, 
The Condominium Act says that the Condominium Corporation repairs the units, but this can be changed by the declaration. The responsibility to repair the units is almost always addressed in the declaration. So in summary, the declaration typically says who is obligated to repair the units. In most cases, not all, but most cases, the declaration says that the owners are obligated to repair their units. However, I add the following. The corporation is obligated to arrange insurance covering the common elements and the standard units. So if a standard unit is damaged by an insured event, the owner is entitled to the insurance coverage available under the corporation's insurance policy. In such cases, the owner might still bear responsibility for the deductible portion of the loss under the corporation's insurance policy. Responsibility for the corporation's deductible is governed by Section 105 of the Condominium Act and in many cases by an insurance deductibles bylaw. Question number three, can high-rise residents continue to go to the superintendent for help regarding structural problems when a new board insists they go to a new management company? My answer, the superintendent is typically the condominium corporation's employee and is subject to the corporation's direction and control, usually under the supervision of the manager. So in my view, the condominium corporation, the board, can decide whether or not owners are to communicate with the superintendent about condominium matters. Next question. How does the condo set up a plan to borrow funds for shortages in reserve funds needed over the next three years, which allows for some to make payments and others to pay the assessment up front? We anticipate that the amount may be close to a million dollars needed. We also require that individual titles not be encumbered. My answer, a condominium corporation can pass a bylaw to authorize the corporation to borrow. If the lender agrees, and many condominium lenders do agree, the borrowing can allow owners to opt out of the loan by paying their special assessment directly rather than making payments on the loan. So again, owners who opt out of the loan don't have to make loan payments because they pay their share directly to the corporation. And again, this depends on the acceptance or the allowance of the lender to uh, allowing owners to opt out of the loan. A condominium loan is a potential encumbrance against the units that opt into the loan. The loan is registered on title and is mentioned in the status certificates but a condominium loan does not really encumber any unit as long as the payments are being made. If any payments are not made, a lien will be registered against those units the same way that a lien is registered for arrears of common expenses. So in other words, the obligation to make the loan payments is really no different than the obligation to pay common expenses or to pay a special assessment. As long as the payments are being made, there is no encumbrance. But the payments, of course, have to be made or an encumbrance, a lien, will be registered. And my last question, when a reserve fund study is grossly incorrect, such as an omitted item, a wrong quantity, or a wrong cost, what recourses are available? Are reserve fund studies ever audited by CAO? My answer First and foremost, reserve fund studies are not audited or monitored by the Condominium Authority of Ontario, so that's not a consideration. Um, 
my my first thought though is as follows if you encounter a clear error in a reserve fund study you should immediately think about any required wording in the status certificates because the error might mean that the reserve fund contributions have been insufficient and that an increase in your reserve fund contributions therefore might be necessary. This would have to be disclosed in paragraph 12 of the prescribed status certificate form. In terms of claims, I think you can certainly ask the reserve fund analyst to provide a corrected reserve fund study at no cost. You could then issue a fresh notice of future funding um, however, in most cases, the condominium corporation and existing owners won't have additional basis for a claim against the analyst because the error won't normally cause them to suffer a loss. It's just that they would be forced to pay the corrected amounts later rather than earlier. However, any purchasers since the date of the flawed reserve fund study, those purchasers might have basis for claim because they may have relied upon the inaccurate reserve fund study when they purchased. That's it for me, Nats. Back to you. Awesome, Jim. Those are great questions that we received on those items. So uh, hopefully the viewers were able to get some clarity on those. So thank you so much, Jim, on reserve funds and repairs. As I said, folks, we have so many different topics here today. We're trying to cover as many of them as we can. Quick reminder that our Q&As are a little bit different from our condo crunches, so we do run a little bit longer. We try and give ourselves between an hour and an hour and a half to try and get as many questions in as possible. We have three more of our lawyers to run through some more key questions we've received. And Vic, I think you have four or five different questions here. So I'll just turn the floor over to you, keep everybody in suspense, and you can walk us through your various issues. Over to you. Perfect. Thanks, Nancy. Um, so I've actually reduced my five questions to three, but I'm still going to answer all five questions. Um, so uh, the first question relates to volunteers. Uh, the question is, is it legally possible for a condominium corporation to have a committee comprised of volunteers? So the short answer is yes, it is legally possible for a condominium corporation to have a committee comprised of volunteers. Volunteers can and do sig uh, make significant contributions to condominium communities. However, it is important to recognize that there are some risks that come with engaging volunteers. And so condominium corporations need to carefully weigh these risks and consider any possible measures to reduce such risks. Um, now, turning to these risks, the first is associated with volunteers um, is that volunteers do not typically have WSIB coverage. As many of you know, uh, WSIB coverage provides insurance for workplace-related injury and illness. And the availability of this coverage can often reduce or eliminate the risk of a claim against an employer for workplace injury. However, as we know, volunteers are unpaid and, not normal, and are not normally considered a hired worker, and therefore WSIB coverage is not normally available for a volunteer. The second risk associated with volunteers is that volunteers do not typically have and cannot obtain liability insurance for themselves. This means that if a volunteer causes harm or damage to a person or property while performing the volunteer's tasks for the uh, condominium, the volunteer will not have liability insurance to cover any resulting claims. At the same time, the condominium could be vicariously liable for any harm or damage caused by one of its volunteers. 
So in summary, when a hired worker performs a task for condominium corporations, there is, of course, the risk that the worker might be hurt or might cause harm or damage. But when a volunteer is performing a task for a condominium corporation, these same risks are normally higher, simply because the volunteer will not normally have the protection of the WSIB coverage or liability insurance that are available uh, to the hired workers. Now, in our view, this does not mean that condominium corporations should never engage volunteers. But before doing so, it is important to consider steps that can be taken in order to manage these risks. So some of these steps include, uh, first, considering how risky um, are the tasks that are to be performed by the volunteers and how big is the risk of harm to the property or persons, including the volunteer. So for example, if the volunteer is simply, you know, is the volunteer simply gardening or are they using powered tools up on a ladder somewhere on the condominium property? Um, related to this point, it makes sense for condominiums to take steps to confirm that the volunteer has the proper skill, training, and competence to safely carry out the assigned work. In other words, the condominium should be able to show that its decision to accept this person for this volunteer work is sound and reasonable. This means that a condominium corporation should consider all of its information about the, inform uh, about the volunteer and must be sure to obtain any further information as reasonably appropriate, including obtaining references, asking the volunteer about their experience, and so forth. A second and very important step to consider to manage the risks associated with volunteer work is, does the condominium corporation's comprehensive liability insurance cover the volunteer relationship being contemplated. Without this coverage, the condominium corporation may be vulnerable uh, to having to pay for any injuries or damage that result from the volunteer. In the absence of this coverage, it may be best to decline the offer of volunteer work. That said, the corporation's comprehensive liability insurance should respond in the event of a claim either by the volunteer if injured while performing the tasks on the condominium property or by a third party if harmed by an act or omission by the, of the volunteer relating to their volunteer activities. And so in our view, it's, it always makes sense to verify that such coverage is available with the condominium's insurer before engaging in, uh, volunteers. Relatedly, be sure to advise the corporation's insurer of the full nature of the corporation's relationship with the volunteers and of the specific work to be performed by the volunteer. This may increase the likelihood um, of coverage under the corporation's insurance policies as the insurer will have notice of the volunteer work to be completed. In other words, this should re reduce the possibility of the insurer denying coverage for uh, the undisclosed risks. A third step to consider is, does it make sense to pass a board resolution to appoint a volunteer as an, as an officer of the condominium corporation for the purposes of the specific volunteer task? Taking this step may also increase uh, the likelihood of coverage under the condominium's uh, insurance policies. Another step to consider to manage the risks associated with volunteer work is, uh, does it make sense for the condominium corporation to purchase any sort of disability insurance for the volunteer in the event um, they're harmed uh, while performing their volunteer activities? Finally, uh, the final step to consider is, uh, does it make sense for the condominium corporation and the volunteer to enter into an agreement outlining their rights, obligations, and risks of the volunteer and the condominium corporation?
We generally always uh, think it, that this is a good idea. Um, this should be a written agreement uh, stating exactly what the volunteer work will entail and that it is purely voluntary. Um, having this agreement in place uh, also avoids the risk that the volunteer will later claim that um, they are expecting compensation for the volunteer work completed. So. My main takeaway is that before engaging volunteers, condominium corporations should carefully assess the related risks and what steps the condominium corporation can take in order to manage those risks. If you're unsure about a particular uh, condominium volunteer relationship, consider obtaining legal advice. Uh, now, my second question uh, today relates to rules, um, and the question is, can a condominium make a rule prohibiting derelict vehicles from being parked in unit-owned parking spaces? My answer to this question is very brief. It is yes. Uh, the third and final question, um, I've condensed the final three questions into this one question, um, is does the condominium corporation need to consolidate amendments uh, to the declaration or bylaws into a single document? So turning first to the declaration, uh, the condominium corporation is not required to consolidate amendments to the declaration into a single document. However, if a condominium corporation is attempting to amend the declaration, it can be helpful, helpful to consolidate the amendments into a single document in order to show the proposed amendments to the owners in order to obtain their consents. Um, this is particularly the case if there's various um, amendments throughout the declaration. If the amendments to the declaration are ultimately passed, uh, the amendments to the declaration will then need to be registered on title um, to the condominium property, but not in a consolidated form. Um, now, turning to bylaws, if an amendment to a bylaw is required, the condominium corporation would need to pass an amending bylaw. But similar to the amendments to the declaration, the amending bylaw is not required to be consolidate to be in uh, a consolidated form. Um, all right. That's it for me, Nancy. Back over to you. Fantastic, Vic. Thank you so much. So many different intricacies. And it, I, we saw a couple of questions pop up into our chat about uh, volunteers. And as I was saying earlier, we, we aren't able to take questions live during our session here today because we have so many questions submitted. But... Cheryl, if you want to go ahead, Cheryl's going to pop in a podcast link. Uh, DHA has a fantastic podcast on all sorts of key issues. And there's a recent podcast on volunteers and how to protect your condominium corporation. So if you watch for the chat link, Cheryl's going to pop that into there at some point. And if you have continued questions, uh, you can go ahead and check out the podcast. And in the meantime, Christy, everything to do with common elements. So we're gonna turn it over to Christy to take us through some common element challenges. Thank you, Nancy. All right, I'm going to uh, go over, I think we received four questions with respect to common element challenges that I'm going to answer. So the first question that we received is, can a condominium charge fees to an owner in relation to the upkeep of the exclusive use common element space? Uh, the answer to this question really depends on the responsibilities for the upkeep of the exclusive use space. So generally speaking, um, the responsibility for repair and maintenance of exclusive use common element is going to be dictated by the declaration. So the first thing to do is to confirm what the declaration says about who is responsible for repair and maintenance of the exclusive use common element space. Generally speaking, although not in every case, this is not an absolute but generally speaking, 
uh, if an owner has the exclusive exclusive use of a portion of the common elements, they will the declaration will indicate that they are responsible for the maintenance of that exclusive use space. Um, again, that's not every case, so just be sure to check your particular wording. If the owner is charged with the responsibility of maintaining the exclusive use common element space, uh, then it is up to the owner to maintain that space. And if they fail to do that, then in accordance with Section 92 of the Condominium Act, the corporation can undertake the required maintenance work and charge the costs associated with that work back to the owner as part of their common expenses. Again, the specifics are going to depend on every um, on the wording of the declaration and the particular circumstances of your case, but that's sort of a general idea of where to go with that question. The next question that we had is, I have had my front door inspected by three different uh, door companies, and they have all told me that I need a new door. Who is responsible for its replacement, and what can I do if it is a con if it is the condo's responsibility and they refuse? Um, the answer to this question, again, is going to depend on the particular wording of your declaration. So the first thing to do is to confirm whether or not the doors are part of the common elements or part of the units, and then to confirm what the repaired maintenance responsibilities are with respect to the components. So um, again, very generally, not in every case, but generally speaking, suite entry doors are part of the common elements of condominium corporation. You have to check your specific declaration, the wording of your specific declaration to confirm that. But generally speaking, uh, the doors are in, in most cases part of the common elements. And in most cases, again, the declaration will indicate that uh, the repair and maintenance responsibilities with respect to the suite entry doors, if they're part of the common elements, are the responsibility of the condominium corporation. Once again, just caution you to check your declaration to uh, ensure, to, to confirm what the specifics are in your case. But um, to answer the question, I have to sort of provide a, a general um, answer. Uh, so if the door in your case is common element, a common element door, and it is the responsibility of the corporation to repair and maintain the common elements, then it is the responsibility of the corporation to repair uh, the door and replace it as at the end of its useful life. That said, the reason for the required replacement may be a factor in determining responsibility for replacement. So for example, if the door requires replacement because it was damaged by the resident of the owner or due to some other type of accident, the responsibility may be a little bit different. Um, but again, generally speaking, if we're talking about needed replacement of the door because it's just come to the end of its useful life, uh, then in the, in the circumstances that I've sort of set out where the corporation is responsible for repair and maintenance of the door, then the corporation would be responsible for the replacement of that door. It's part of um, the corporation's statutory obligations to repair and maintain the common elements as well, it, it, subject to uh, what the declaration says. Um, but it is the corporation's statutory duty, uh, assuming the declaration says what I'm suggesting it might say. And um, it would be a, reserve, a proper reserve fund expenditure. If the corporation is refusing to replace the door, notwithstanding its obligations, um, then what I would suggest is you consult with a, uh, a lawyer because what you'll need to do um, next is really take some, some more serious legal action. So uh, that's my best advice there. The next question that I've got is, is there a problem for a condo with an outdoor pool to go without a lifeguard as long as they have proper signage and a, code, a coded lock for access? 
So condominium pools are considered public pools, and they are therefore subject to uh, the regulations that govern the operation of public pools. And those regulations are enacted under the Health Protection and Promotion Act. Condominium pools are generally considered Class B pools. So there's two types of public pools, Class A and Class B. Condominiums, because there's more restrictive access to them, are considered Class B pools. And as a result, if they have a water surface of less than 93 square meters, they do not require supervision by a lifeguard as long as signs are posted that contain very specific wording. The wording for the signs is actually dictated by the regulations. So as long as the signs with the specific wording are posted um, and the location and frequency of those signs is also dictated by the regulation. So as long as the signage complies with the, the requirements of, the, of the, um, the regulation, then the corporation is not required to have a lifeguard. The, the signage essentially, the notice required, the specific wording required is essentially along the lines of there is, this is an unsupervised pool and swimmers swim at their own risk. Those under 12 need to be um, supervised or uh, need to be with an adult. Uh, for pools that are larger than 93 square meters, you would still be exempt in terms of requiring a lifeguard as long as you don't permit more than 10 bathers at a time. So as long as the signage confirms that no more than 10 bathers are permitted at any one time, then no um, uh, lifeguard is required. Regardless of the size, all public pools do have to have lockable access doors. So that is a requirement. And just a quick note that there are plenty more um, uh, obligations that a condominium corporation has with respect to its pool, um, the operation of its pool, because it is classified as a public pool. There's all kinds of regulations about water testing, water turnover, um, basically the health and safety aspects of operating a pool. And the best approach is to hire an operator to ensure that your regulation, the, the applicable regulations are met. Last but not least, in terms of my questions, what is the board's responsibility, if any, to provide electric vehicle charging? Who pays, all owners or just those with the electric vehicles? Uh, so this is a, a great question, very timely. Um, uh, there are new regulations that were enacted in 2018 that regulate the approval process for the installation of electric vehicle chargers in condominiums. And it essentially, these regulations essentially uh, do away with some of the restrictions that are otherwise in place when you're looking at making common element modifications. So generally speaking, an electric vehicle charging outlet is going to be, it's going to constitute a common element modification. The, the new regulations confirm that if a board wishes to install electric vehicle charging stations, it has the authority to do so without the need to involve the owners in a vote, as long as the estimated cost of the installation is less than 10% of the annual budgeted common expenses, and as long as the owners will not consider the installation to constitute a reduction or elimination of the use and enjoyment of the property. So as long as it doesn't have a negative impact on the owner's ability to use the property, and as long as the cost is less than 10% of the annual uh, budget, then the corporation can go ahead on its own initiative to install EV chargers. And the cost of that installation, if it's the board deciding to do so on behalf of the corporation, would be paid by the corporation as part of the common expenses. If the uh, electric vehicle charging outlet is being installed at the owner's request or unowner's request or what, more than one owner's request, um, it's an owner-initiated uh, EV charging 
uh, outlet installation. And so in that case where the corporation receives the request from an owner, the corporation must allow for the installation unless the installation would adversely affect the structural integrity of the property or pose a health and safety risk to the property and its occupants. If either of those um, conditions is a concern, then the corporation requires a report from an expert confirming that either the installation would affect the structural integrity or it would pose a health and safety risk to the property or its occupants. So you will need an expert report confirming that those concerns are legitimate in your particular case in order to reject the application. Absent an expert report to confirm that these um, uh, concerns are legitimate concerns in your case, the corporation does have to permit for the installation of the EV charger. Uh, however, it, it would be subject to terms and conditions that would be set out in an agreement between the owner making the request and the corporation. And that agreement has to be registered on title to the owner's unit. Also, the cost of that particular installation would be borne by the unit owner who's made the request. Um, I've set out the very easy examples. I know that there's a lot of nuance when it comes to requests for installation of EV chargers. So if you're dealing with a situation where there's more nuance, um, that is probably a situation where it's best to consult with your uh, lawyer for specific, more specific information. That's it for me. I'm going to turn it over back over to Nancy. Thanks, Christine. As you said, I think we're seeing a couple of months uh, these days with various types of EV installations. So lots of differently different and unique cases. So fabulous. Thank you, Christy. And to Mitch, our next speaker. Mitch, um, I think it's just all about rentals, right? All about rentals over on your end. So we're going to go ahead and turn it over to Mitch to talk to us about the key questions received on rentals. Thank you so much, Nancy. Um, so I'm going to try and keep it short and sweet here. I just have a, a couple questions that we received related to rentals. Um, firstly, uh, the question was, how can a condo corporation of an adult community, 55 years and up, prevent an owner from renting a unit to a young family with children? So in short, uh, a condominium corporation cannot prevent an owner from renting to a young family with children, as this would be considered discrimination on, based on family status uh, pursuant to the Ontario Human Rights Code. So discrimination based on family status, which is one of uh, the so-called enumerated grounds of discrimination under the code, basically things you can't discriminate for um, age, um, sexual orientation, etc. cetera. Um, discrimination based on family status occurs when a, per a person, in this case, the prospective renter of a condominium unit is treated unfairly because of their family caring obligations. So this unfair treatment would occur if they were prevented from renting a condominium unit because they are simply a person who has children. Um, the Ontario Human Rights Code currently prohibits discrimination on the basis of family status in the areas of housing, employment, contracts, uh, vocational and professional associations, services, goods, facilities. Obviously, the area of housing is the one that sort of captures um, condominium corporations in Ontario under this, this specific provision. Um, so as such, condominium declarations and, and their governing documents cannot discriminate based on family status, uh, such as having children. Further to, to the question about adult-only lifestyle buildings, they're therefore not permitted in Ontario, except for in specific situations such as residences, which include a requirement, a qualification, or a consideration for seniors, um, which would include really just senior residences or, or care facilities. But again, condominium corporations cannot prevent families from renting and cannot consider themselves 
adult communities pursuant to the Ontario Human Rights Code. Um, if a condominium were to prohibit an owner from renting to a person with children on those grounds, it would be in violation of the Ontario Human Rights Code, and the condo would risk becoming the subject of a claim under the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario that it would certainly lose. So in summary, um, condominiums cannot prohibit a person from renting a unit just because they have children, um, and they would be in violation of the Human Rights Code if they were to do so. My second question here is was sort of more generally about the condominium corporation's record keeping, keeping obligations in relation to tenants and tenancies. So basically, when an owner rents out their unit, what records are is the owner required to provide the corporation? And what records is a condominium required to keep and provide to other owners if other owners request them um, in relation to any rentals or tenancies that might be included in, in their condominium building? So just to start out more generally, and as I'm sure most of you attending today are aware, Section 119 of the Condo Act states that owners and occupiers of units, occupiers which would obviously include um, any tenants or renters, shall comply with the Condominium Act and the corporation's governing documents. Those documents obviously being the corporate uh, corporation's declaration, its bylaws, and any of its rules that are in place. So... When an owner cho chooses to rent their unit, they are responsible for notifying management of the leasing and ten or tenancy agreement and providing the tenant's contact information pursuant to the Condominium Act, which owners and tenants, as I mentioned, are obligated to follow. Specifically, uh, we have Section 83, Sub 1 of the Condominium Act, which states that owners have a legal duty to provide notice to their corporation within 10 days of signing a lease with the tenant. Um, so again, if, if any of your owners sign a lease, they are required to, to notify the condominium within 10 days of signing that lease pursuant to section 83 sub 1. This section also goes on to state that an owner must provide the corporation with the tenant's name, uh, as well as the owner's address and a copy of the lease or renewal or a summary of that lease to the condominium. The section goes further to state that the owner is responsible for, for providing the tenant with a copy of the corporation's declaration, its bylaws, and its rules, uh, basically ensuring that the, the tenant is aware of any of its obligations um, pursuant to, to those governing documents, which again, it is obligated to follow, just like it were an owner of the building, both owners and tenants um, having the same, same responsibilities. Importantly, um, I went on to say that sort of addressing all of the owner's obligations to provide the condominium with, with very various information about the tenant and the lease they've entered into, the Condominium Act and this section in particular also addresses the condominium's obligation to keep records of the notices provided to it by owners. So um, sort of getting into the condominium's record keeping obligations in this matter. So section 83 sub three states that condominiums corporations shall maintain a record of all the notices it receives under this section. Therefore, your condominium is required to have a record of all the notices, notices specifically, it receives respecting tenancies. And owners as well have a right to access and receive these notices if they submit a required records request. In fact, we also have a, a recent decision from the Condominium Authority Tribunal in which a condominium corporation was ordered to create a record of notices it received under Section 83 of the Condominium Act and then provide those to the requesting owner who had brought the condominium um, to the Condominium Authority Tribunal for um, 
for various records requests it had made and that the condominium had failed to provide to it. So in this condominium authority tribunal case, an owner, like I said, requested various records, which included the record of notices received by the condominium, condominium corporation respecting tenancies under section 83 of the act. The condominium corporation did not provide the owner with the notice of these leases, claiming that the corporation had not received any notices of such um, tenancies. In deciding this matter, the tribunal held that the condominium corporation had failed to keep the required record, that being the notices of the tenancies, and that this amounted to a re refusal to provide the requested record without a reasonable excuse. In turn, the tribunal ordered the condominium corporation to create the requested record and to provide it to the requesting owner. The tribunal said, Section 83 sub 3 of the Act clearly requires the corporation to maintain a record of the notices it receives under Section 83 of the Act, regardless of whether that notice is provided on a particular form. If the condominium corporation is aware that, in this case, at least eight units had been leased within the current fiscal year, as stated in the periodic information certificate, they must have received some sort of notice from those eight unit owners, and a record of those notices should then be maintained as per the Act. So just to briefly sort of summarize everything I just stated there. Um, so we have owner's obligations under the Condominium Act to, one, provide notice to the corporation that their unit has been leased and rented. And again, they have to do that within 10 days of doing so. They also have to provide the corporation with the tenant's name, the owner, so their address, and a copy or summary of the lease that they've entered into with that tenant. And then also provide the tenant with a copy of the corporation's governing documents, those obviously being the declaration, the bylaws, and any of its rules. Um, in turn, condominiums are also required to keep notices of the tenancies that owners must provide to them, and other owners are entitled to receive these notices should they request them. As seen in that, that CAT case I just sort of summarized, um, and pursuant to Section 83 of the Act, the condo must ensure that it receives the required um, notices from any owners who are renting their units and any of those documents. So it's very important um, that once once you're aware that that a unit is being is being rented out, that you receive any of these any of these these documents I just spoke about. In fact, you you are required to under Section 83 of the Act, and if not, you could you could um, get an order from from the condominium authority to provide those records and produce them pursuant to the Condo Act. With that, I think that is it for me, and probably it for this session pending closing remarks from Nancy. Thank you so much, everybody. Hi, Mitch. And don't go away yet, Mitch. I think just so that we, I, I think the words notices and notice may have confused some of our listeners. So we're required to provide the record of the notice, but we wouldn't be giving the notices themselves. I've got that right, right, Mitch? Because you of course the notices themselves would contain owner-specific information. And those would have to be redacted pursuant to the act. Correct. If Thank you for the qualification. No, and that's okay. You were <laughs> saying notices and notice. And I think uh, we just had one person say, I wasn't sure if it was notices or notices notice. So great. No, that's terrific. A lot of really great information. So thank you so much for that, Mitch. We do have one final question, folks, but we can't answer this question without your help. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to actually launch a poll here this afternoon. It was probably one of the most intriguing questions we received here today, and I'm launching it now. The question is, eggnog, is it a delicious holiday treat? or a festive abomination. So choice one is delicious holiday treat. 
choice two is a festive abomination. There may be other concoctions that you add to the eggnog to make it a bit more of a holiday treat. Maybe that'll be our question for next year. I'm going to count down from five, four, three, two, and one. I'm going to end that poll. I'm going to share those results in just one quick second. I didn't allow our panelists to share, uh, to vote, and I'm getting some negative feedback from my panelists. We've got some serious concerns on this end here. Aha. Delicious holiday treat wins out with 72% and festive abomination with 28%. Well, there you have it, folks. Looks like eggnog is a winner here today. I'll stop sharing that off the screen. I'm going to thank everybody for participating here today. Wishing everybody a happy and safe holiday season and look forward to our upcoming January session where we hope to tackle uh, some key issues that were raised in some other questions. Uh, stay tuned for more information about that and the podcast of today's session. So once again, a final thank you for being here today. Happy holidays and see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Conopedia is brought to you by Davidson Hu Allen, a boutique condominium law firm servicing Eastern Ontario. You can find more about our firm on our website at davidsonconolaw.ca. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended to provide legal opinion or advice, which cannot be given without knowing the facts of a specific situation. Use of this podcast does not establish a solicitor and client relationship. The intro and outro music is provided by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com.